Okay, good evening everyone. Tomorrow is the full moon of Vasalaha, which may be the most significant day in the Buddhist year. So we can rejoice, you can rejoice that you three are the, the special meditators who are here on Asalaha. Oh, we, we think about Vesak as being the most important day of the Buddhist year. So I guess it's debatable. It's, Vesak is certainly much more celebrated. Celebrated probably because we we are much more inclined to generally to worship and revere a persona, an individual, rather than revere teachings, which you might argue is a bit of a shame. And I think here in our center, we're much more about worshiping, the, well, venerating the teachings. Maybe not worshiping exactly, but paying homage to them, certainly. We certainly take the teachings very seriously. We don't have a lot of connection with the, the historic Buddha, not directly. And hopefully you're not too obsessed with me you know, guru worship or anything like that, that would be a shame. No, what we're here is, we're here to do is practice the teachings, and that's why I say Asala has, is, doesn't matter which is more important, but Asala has very important, a very special day. It has the distinction of being the day we're told on which the Buddha first taught when he set in motion the wheel of Dhamma. So we have a discourse called the Dhamma Chakabhavatana Sutta, which means the discourse on turning the wheel of Dhamma. So the story goes that, well, if we want the whole story, we can quickly go from the very beginning. The beginning is when this ascetic Sumedha went off into the mountains and cultivated high states of spirituality, even magical powers, they say. And he spent years and probably lifetimes even cultivating himself to such a degree it was hard to find anyone who was so accomplished as he was in meditation practice. This is without Buddhism, right? This was in the time outside of a Buddhasasana. So long ago, far, far beyond anything that could ever be counted. So you couldn't even say how long ago. It's like Star Wars, a long, long time ago. Just long ago. This is not talking about when 2,500 years ago this is in a time so foreign from this time, just in a completely foreign time. But this is what they say happened. He came down from the mountains. And when he came down from the mountains, after being out of society for a long time, he, he was surprised to see all of the people working on this road, all of the villagers and people from the cities, working on clearing a path and putting up flowers and decorations and so on, like there was a parade or something. And he asked, what, 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 is the, what is going on here? Why is everyone decorating and doing it? 
making such a big deal here. So, oh, the Buddha is coming. And he just heard the word Buddha. And here was someone who... See, the word Buddha is a very special word. So revering the Buddha is not, a, it's not by any means a bad thing or a, a base thing. It's a very special thing. And very special beings, even just when they hear the word Buddha, they are... Uh, well, some people would even faint. They, they would hear the word Buddha and it would just totally overwhelm them with joy. That's what happened to Sumedha, kind of. He was just so overjoyed and he said, well, give me a, a, give me a portion of the road. I'll do my part and we will all honor the Buddha with this act. This isn't our Buddha. This is the Buddha Dipankara. 28 Buddhas ago, something like that. A long, long time ago. And so Sumedha, they gave, they looked at Sumedha and they said, oh, we know this guy, this is that ascetic who has great spiritual power. We'll give him the hard part. So they, they said, you you can take care of that swamp over there. And there was a big marsh area. They directed him to go and clean that part up. And he looked at it and he said, ah, well, I could use my magical power, my spiritual power, and clean this up in a in an instant, but what would be the greatness of that? What would be the great merit in that? He said, I'll do it manually. And with his own two hands and sticks or shovels or whatever, he started cleaning up and hauling dirt and making a path. And then there was a uproar and he looked off and he saw the Buddha coming. And he realized he wasn't finished. His part wasn't finished. There was still a marshy area. It was a small wet patch anyway that wasn't finished. But he looked at the Buddha and he said, this is incredible. And he saw the Buddha walking, followed by 500 monks, all in a line, all over there. Eyes downcast, probably all arahants. And he looked and he contemplated and he said to himself, I've done such work in my spiritual practice that if I were to just hear one word or one verse or just listen to the teaching, I would instantly become enlightened. I just, all I need is that little push. But he said, oh, maybe I, he looked and he said, but what if I instead take this as an example and I, with my great attainment, were to become a Buddha? And so he decides not to listen, not to hear the Buddha's teachings, not to ask him or, or approach him for any teaching. And instead he lies down in the mud and he says, instead I will sacrifice myself. And through the power of this sacrifice, let the Buddha walk over me, I will become May I become a Buddha. So Buddha Dipankara comes up and sees him lying in the mud and turns to his chief disciple and said, you see that ascetic lying there in the mud? Well, in four uncountable eons and a hundred thousand great eras, he will become the Buddha Gotama. And walked around him and went on his way. He didn't actually step on him. If he'd stepped on him, he would have died because all the other monks would follow and yeah, he couldn't have, he would have died because of that. But the Buddha walked around. So he went off into the forest. Sumedha went off into the forest. There's a long story about all the things he did and many stories about the things he did in his next lives and in many lives and eventually became Gotama Buddha was born Siddhartha Gautama, left home and tortured himself for six years. After six years of torturing himself, he realized the middle way. He realized that, oh, torturing myself is not the way. He entered into a tranquil state of meditation and pursued that and practiced insight meditation and became the Buddha. 
That's Vesak. That's the story of Visaka Puja. Once he'd done that, he thought to himself, who should I teach? And he thought of his two teachers, the two ascetics who had taught him tranquility meditation, absorption through this meditation that Sumedha would have practiced that's very calming and fixing and focusing, trance kind of. But he realized, oh, they'd both died already and been reborn in the Brahma realms where they couldn't hear his teachings. So then he thought about these five ascetics these five see when the Buddha was five years old or something like that no five days old five days old not years no, the Buddha was uh, very young the Bodhisattva sorry not the Buddha before he was the Buddha when he was very young the king had these court astrologers come and divine his future something like 84 of them or something I don't know a lot of them and they all said, they all held up two fingers. They said, if he leaves home, he will become a Buddha. If he stays in the household life, he will become the king of the world. But one out of all of them held up one finger. This was, his name was Kundanya. And he said, there's only one future for someone of this. They look at his body and they look at his, you know, these lines on his hands and his feet. Palmistry, I guess it's called. And he said, there's only one future for him. He will become a Buddha. He will leave home. And the story goes that Kundanya, when he heard that the Buddha had left home, he left home as well. Now, he was quite a bit older than the Buddha, but... They say that four other court astrologers who were sons of those 84 who had... See, Gondanya was the youngest of all of them, and all those old ones, they'd already gotten too old, but they told their children to follow after, and four of them did. So here we have these five court astrologers who, when they heard that the Bodhisattva had left home, they said, well, we know what's going to happen now, and they left home as well. But when the Bodhisattva stopped torturing himself, they left him and they went off and dwelt in Isipatana deer forest. It's hard when you have wrong views, it's easy to lose faith and to have wrong opinions, you know. I mean, people who criticize other people, the criticism they had for the Bodhisattva, they, they were unable to see the good that he was doing. They were unable to see that what was wrong because they were so attached to this view. I mean, it was a prevailing view in India at the time. You had to torture yourself to become enlightened. So the Bodhisattva was on his own and was able to attain enlightenment quite easily because he was all alone and left to his meditation. But now he'd thought, well, I have to teach someone. So these five Probably they would understand if they can ever stop being so stubborn. And so he walked all the way. Well, he spent 49 days, which is a little over a month, in front of the Bodhi tree, in and around the area of the Bodhi tree. You can still go there in India and see all the seven places he stayed. Seven days sitting under the Bodhi tree, seven days looking at the Bodhi tree, seven days walking back and forth between the Bodhi tree and another place. Tatiyang Chankamanang Setang Chatutang Ratanagarang. The fourth week he spent contemplating the Abhidhamma. Panchamang Ajapalancha. I'm going to get these wrong. The Ajapala, the East End, the other three were at three other trees. Not so important. After seven, well, important, but not for our story. After seven weeks, 49 days, he walked. He walked to Isipatana, he met a couple of people on the way, but finally he made it to Isipatana on the, uh, on the full moon of Asalaha. So you can count out how long that was. It's 
total of two months, I guess, May, June, July. So about 60 days. So it took him about, I don't know if I got this right. Anyway, he got there on a salah. And he, he approached these five ascetics and they were very stubborn, very stuck in their views. And on this we have this problem when we're teaching people from other meditation traditions sometimes. They can be fairly, fairly stubborn. Or rather religious traditions, people who belong to other religions can be very stubborn. And these monks were that, these ascetics were that way. They saw the Buddha, Buddha coming and they said, oh, here, come, here he comes again. Yeah, this guy who we put all our faith in. Boy, how wrong we were. Well, let's not, let's not, uh, well, we should, we should rise up to greet him, but let's not take his bowl and robes. This was the tradition, of course, it still is with monks. When, when your teacher is coming, you, you rise up to greet them and you take their, their robe, they would have the outer robe carrying it, and you take it from them, and you take their bowl, and you, know, you do that. We do that for senior monks who come to visit. It's a, it's a tradition, it's a courtesy. They said, well, let's, we'll stand up, but we, we're not gonna, you know, we will not greet this man like our teacher because he's given up the path, gone back to being lazy, indulgent, but they couldn't help themselves. The story goes that as the Buddha approached, his magnificence, just his greatness, just the aura and his presence was too much for them. And they all stood up, of course, but they also took it. One of them took his robes, the other took his bowl. And they put it and they sat, they gave him a high seat and they sat down and okay. And then, but they were still very stubborn. They said, well, so welcome back and hello, and they, they greeted him as Gautama. And they, he said, uh, what did he call bhikkhus? He, at this time he already called them bhikkhus, I think. Actually, I can't remember. He said, don't call me, don't call me Gautama. I mean, he said, I'm, I'm a Buddha. I'm fully enlightened. He's a basic, he said, you know, this, is, this attitude is not beneficial for you, basically. He said, no, that's not, he basically says, not, proper to address me in this way. What he was trying to say, I guess, is um, that he was enlightened, he said, and he, you know, to give them some confidence in his teachings, you know, to allow them to appreciate what he was going to teach them. They couldn't if they didn't have any respect. That's why respect for your teachers is that's the most important reason for it. You respect your teachers not just out of gratitude, but because an attitude of respect is the only way you're going to appreciate and take in the teachings. Psychologically, it, it's very important. And he said, I, I've realized full enlightenment, and if you practice according to my teachings, you too can become enlightened. And they said, give us a break. You couldn't even become enlightened when you were engaging in these austerities now that you've gone back to eating. That was basically it. He went back to eating solid food. How could you possibly become enlightened now? A second time and for a third time he told them. And after the third time they rejected him, he said, Tell me, have I ever spoken like this before? And that got through to them. You know, this kind of a question, they realized that, yeah, this was a claim that they could investigate. And it may very well be possible that he's telling the truth, because he isn't, wasn't the sort of person to brag or to lie for certain. So, okay, then they changed their attitude and they did listen. And he, when he realized they were open to listening, he taught the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. And so that's sort of what I want to go over today. I think it's just right, you know. It's right that we celebrate this by reviewing the teaching, going over it again, renewing it, giving it new life, continuing to turn the wheel of Dhamma. So the Dhamma Chakapavattana Sutta, what the Buddha said, 
I taught basically two things. And I think it's useful if we separate the sutta into two parts with a third part at the end. That's more narrative than anything. But the two things the Buddha taught uh, were first of all the middle way. And so we hear about this a lot. This was really the first thing the Buddha taught. And the middle way, you could think of it as perhaps the most important thing. But there's also a sense that it was very important for these ascetics to hear. The whole of the Buddha's narrative, his whole life is, um, it's an archetype, I think, is, is the word you use. I mean, it's very, it follows a very important pattern. He spent 29 years in the lap of luxury, what many of us do. Many people who hear the Dhamma for the first time have spent their lives in great, or at least reasonable, enjoyment of sensuality. That's the way of the world. That's the way of people who, um, who, have, have, who are outside of religion, people who live in the secular world. The way of things, even if you work hard, is to find pleasure, to enjoy life. And, and then he spent six years after that going in the opposite direction. And so that the key point here uh, is that the religious life uh, the life that is in opposition to sensual pleasure is in fact, uh, if seen that way, if understood as being in opposition, is actually uh, just, as, just as harmful. The religious life where you deny, you reject, you avoid um, experience, or you avoid pleasure, let's say. Hmm. You do something to uh, to whatsoever to to forbid yourself, to deny yourself pleasure. It's just as problematic. Torturing you, it's it becomes torture. It doesn't help you learn about pleasure. It doesn't help you free yourself from the desire for pleasure. Now the middle way is a realization that the religious life, as it's ordinarily practiced, is insufficient, is in fact problematic and potentially harmful. And that the true religious life is something quite different. It's, the, it's not the balance or moderation of two different things, it's the avoiding of two, of two useless practices, the Buddha called two extremes. And extreme, maybe not the right word, two ends to end, E-N-D, like the, the directions, perhaps. These two anta, these two ends, extremes is perhaps okay, should not be practiced by one who has left the home life. You shouldn't indulge in sensual pleasure and you shouldn't torture yourself. I think that's a very important framing. So the point that I made about it being related to these ascetics is because they were following in his footsteps. They had done the first way, they had gone the second way, and he was trying to explain to them that yes, you're right, sensual pleasure, attachment or desire for sensual pleasure is wrong, is a problem. Sensual pleasure will not lead to satisfaction, and desiring it and craving for it is useless and, well, problematic, worse than useless. It causes a lot of suffering for you and other people. But this torturing of oneself that you guys are caught up in, and all of India at the time was apparently, well, in the religious sphere, was caught up in, is also wrong. It does nothing to help you, it only tortures you, it only makes you suffer. But for our practice, and looking at it more objectively, it is a very core principle in Buddhism. If you look at it from the perspective of mindfulness, it's a good description of what we mean by mindfulness, what we intend in the practice of mindfulness. 
our intention is to neither run away from things nor to chase after them. It's to not react, to not try and fix or change or force, really in fact not, not to have any seeking out of anything. And the seeking out we, we, we aim for is a seeking out of mindfulness, a seeking out of clarity, where we experience things objectively, impartially, equanimously, equanimously non-judgmentally. And so thinking about these two extremes is a great way to begin to understand mindfulness, where you confront pleasure and pain all of experience without any judgment or partiality or reaction or view or, or, or um, analysis of it or anything. To be able to just experience, to be here and now, to really live without getting caught up in all that dead abstract stuff, men mental activity. And so when he taught the middle way, he didn't just say, well, it's avoiding these two. He said, in order to avoid these and, and the practice of the middle way, you need eight qualities. And this is where he taught the Eightfold Noble Path. So it should be very familiar to you if you know anything about Buddhism. The Eightfold Noble Path is one of the key things that is taught about Buddhism. The middle way is, is the Eightfold Noble Path. It's a path with eight parts. It's not just um, a, moder a path of moderation or something like that. It's not even related really to the other two. In order to avoid reaction and, and judgment and clinging to pleasure or self-torture, that sort of thing, you need to cultivate Many the, these eight factors of the path. In detail, the eight. So, in detail, it's eight. In brief, it's the three trainings. But this is really what we're practicing. We practice the right view, right thought. This is in the wisdom category. So, right view means we give up wrong views. Mainly, that's really the start. It means more. We'll get into that. That's the second part of the sutta. Uh, right thought means giving up anger, greed, delusion. The next ones are right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are in the morality, the ethics category. So we need to have right speech, not saying lies or hurting other people with our speech but also not in, in engaging in useless or frivolous speech. We have to have right action, means not killing, not stealing, not cheating. Right livelihood, we have to live in such a way that is, you know, basically living a moral and ethical life. If we want to if we want to attain a state of equanimity and peace. If we want to give up our cravings for pleasure or our self hatred that leads us to or loathing or guilt that leads us to torture ourselves. Want to give that up? Yeah, we have to begin to straighten out our lives, our, our our external interactions with the world. We have to straighten out all the crooked stuff, our speech and our minds, and then begin meditation. The last three: effort, mindfulness, concentration. Put out effort to be mindful, which leads to concentration, or you just have all three all together. When you cultivate mindfulness, concentration comes by itself. You're, you're, you become 
well concentrated in a way of being in focus, as I said, not just being in infinitely focused, but being in focus so that you can see clearly, so that it can give rise to deeper and deeper right view. So these eight parts uh, boil down to morality, concentration, wisdom, or the three trainings. That's the first part of the discourse. That's laying down what Buddhism is. Buddhism is a path, and it has eight parts. And that's what we're here to practice. That's what we practice. Why we practice it? We have these two extremes, and our practice is to find a way to rise above and give them up. So the second part of the sutta is, is much more clearly the first teaching of the Buddha. There's some sense, I think, there has to be some sense that the first part, though important and perhaps even foundational, was just sort of an introduction. I think, I think in some way you could argue just meant for the purpose of straightening out the view of these five ascetics because they were stubborn and here they are skeptically you know grudgingly going to listen but they were still caught up in this idea that the only there were only two extremes right if you're not doing this religious way well you had means you had to be going back to the indulgent way and so the buddha had to show them there was another way but then he said, then he switches topics, or he switches focus, and he says, there are these Four Noble Truths. And he spent the rest of the time talking about them. So this is where we hear uh, the, we hear about the Four Noble Truths as being very central to Buddhism. This is where we find them as well. And the Buddha, after teaching the Four Noble Truths, he said, these Four Noble Truths are enlightenment. Before I knew about these Four Noble Truths, before I understood them, I never claimed to be enlightened. It was only through the realizations regarding these Four Noble Truths that I say that I am a perfectly enlightened Buddha. So when we talk about the core of Buddhism, there is nothing more core, more intrinsic to the path, to the practice, to the goal, to enlightenment than the Four Noble Truths. And that's really what they signify. The Four Noble Truths, you could say, is the doctrine of, of the Buddha. Again and again the Buddha was uh, pigeonholed in this way and that, and talked about his teaching this or that, and the Buddha said, all I teach is these Four Noble Truths, these Four Truths. And so in many ways this is what we're engaging in here. This is the framework for our practice of mindfulness. So each of the Four Noble Truths has three parts. That's how the Buddha laid it out in this sutta. The first Noble Truth is of course the truth of suffering. It is not that life is suffering. You'll hear in books, first noble truth the Buddha taught life is suffering. He never taught that life is suffering. It's maybe splitting hairs, but it's important because it totally misses the point. Life isn't a thing that exists. You can't learn about life being suffering. What you learn about is the truth of suffering. You learn about everything that you cling to being suffering, really anything in the world, everything in the world having the potential to cause you suffering if you cling to it. Right? So it's very much tied up with the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. Suffering exists, suffering is. The recognition that there is suffering. Second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. 
Fourth Noble Truth, back to the path which leads to the cessation of suffering. And the path is, again, the Eightfold Noble Path. It's that path which was talked about in the first part. But the three parts for each of them is that there is some... Well, no, I'm sorry, the three parts. The first one is the, the, the truth itself. Just as I said, so the, the, this is this truth, this is this truth. The second one is what you've got to do about that truth. Each of the four truths is different, and it's fairly simple. There's nothing deep here, but there are a couple of points. There's at least one point that's very important that's often missed. So you have to lay it out like this. It's, I think it's a good thing. And the third part is the realization that you've done the task. So it's a simple framework. It's, here's the truth. You have to do something about it. And once you have done that thing, then you can say you're totally qualified, totally accomplished in regards to that truth. So altogether 12. The Buddha said it comes out to be 12. 3 times 4. So the first noble truth, this is the important one, the one that's often missed or misunderstood. So what what is the the task, do you think, in regards to suffering? I'll ask you, let's have an audience participation. Mindful. Give me, you have an answer? What is the task? I have asked this before of audiences because it's a bit of a trick question. Or it's one that's often misunderstood. What's the task? What are we supposed to do about suffering? Understand. Know that it is a thing. You've been watching the video. <laughs> you, know, you guys are too smart for me. Well, a more traditional audience might get, might get caught up on it, but not you guys. Which is actually, I mean, kudos to you. You know what to do about suffering because you're suffering because I'm torturing you, right? Being here is torture. Oh. Suffering is to be understood completely, fully. Parinyaya. Nyaya is from jnana, from, from the root nya, which means to know. So just nyaya would mean should be known, but parinyaya means, pari is like parinibbana, it's this, this adding this suffix means completely. And that is perhaps the, the most crucial doctrinal point that is often overlooked, but that you, know, you can see clearly here. We're talking about the path between two extremes. Well, what is it? It's to understand thoroughly, completely. And, and we're actually not just interested in the nature of everything. We're interested in suffering. We want to understand suffering. And the way to free yourself from suffering really what we're talking about all four of the Noble Truths, rests upon this, your capacity, your ability, you know, the, the, the progress that you make in understanding suffering. Because that's how you let go. In Buddhism we talk about letting go, we talk about freeing ourselves from suffering. How do you let go? You know, if, that, if, if, if I can do that, I wouldn't suffer. We realize this. It's this clinging. I'm clinging to so many things. If, if only I could let go, how do we do it? So, so key doctrinal point in Buddhism, letting go is accomplished through understanding. It's a claim that we can make. We can say, freeing yourself from suffering depends on you letting go. Letting go means not clinging, exactly. Not clinging exactly, absolutely depends upon understanding. Nothing else. There is no wanting to be free, uh, wanting to let go, forcing yourself, uh, initiating it, doing some special practice that's going to make you let go. No. 
understanding, and, and understanding is probably not even the best word, seeing clearly, that's why we use the word vipassana so often, because what is this understanding? It's from seeing clearly. When you see clearly the nature of suffering, and really it just means looking at experience, right? That's what you're doing here. You're seeing how you torture yourself, right? How the worry comes up, how fear comes up, how anger comes up, how desire comes up. How all these things conspire to torture us, to leave us unsatisfied, disappointed, upset, stressed, unhappy, in pain. And we see that all it was, was a feeding of these causes of suffering, really, our, our cravings, our attachments. So that's the cause of suffering. Cause of suffering you don't have to, you don't have to see clearly. You don't have to understand it. All, you have to, all I have to see is the things that you're clinging to are not worth clinging to, right? You see the suffering that is caused by clinging. Look at the suffering, understand the suffering. What's going to happen? Are you still going to cling? Are you, are you going to feed that? Are you going to encourage it? All this past activity where we were gung-ho about clinging, are you going to continue that? Not likely. The more clearly you see the suffering, the less you are likely to cling. And so the second one isn't, you don't have to see it, you have to abandon it. have to give it up. Bahetaba, it's to be given up, to be abandoned, and it's abandoned through seeing suffering like that. The third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. This is Nibbana, not something mysterious. Nibbana is the attainment of cessation of suffering. It comes about when you see suffering, and how it goes during your course, you're going to build up or you know, increase anyway your your clarity. You'll be you'll see more clearly, and you'll start to get. In the beginning, it'll be a vague notion that something's wrong with my brain, my mind. Oh, I'm, there's something wrong with me, and there's something wrong with these things. As you, as you go on in the practice, you'll see, oh, this clinging, this clinging is causing me so much suffering. And you feel the suffering, you feel the dissatisfaction, the, the incapacity to satisfy these things that I strive for are not worth it. They're just not worth it. And more and more clearly as you go, it'll just gradually become more and more clear until there's kind of like an epiphany. That's when you really attain the Four Noble Truths, is at the last moment. The, the Four Noble Truths are actually not something we're practicing now. What we're practicing now is called the Pubanga Manga. It's the same, but it's preliminary. It only becomes noble at that one moment where you can say, I'm following the path. I mean, you don't say it because you're too busy doing it. But someone could say of you, you are following the path because at that moment you see clearly. You see suffering. You abandon the cause of suffering. You attain the cessation of suffering. It's like the moment where you let go, you finally just get it, and it's like, bah. it's so clear to you that you just had, you get fed up, you've had enough, and you let go. And you attain the cessation of suffering. The third noble truth, satchikattaba, which means it's to be seen with one's own, seen for oneself. You attain it. It's to, to be. Uh, entered into. There's nothing you have to do about that. You don't have to go look for it. Give up and poof, you're free. The fourth noble truth, the path which leads to the cessation of suffering. So this is after teaching the first three. He gets back to what he'd already taught in the first part of the sutta, teaching the practice. And this is where we practice mindfulness. You know, we're, we're engaging in all eight parts cultivating right view. One of the first things you do in meditation, in this meditation practice, is 
gain or or build, begin to build right view, which is to see uh, the physical and mental aspects of reality and, and move away from viewing things in terms of self, I. You know, when we talk about this view of self in Buddhism, you read about it and you maybe don't understand it. And it everyone always says, non-self is so hard to understand. It's really not. I mean, it's deep and profound, and you only really understand it at the last moment when you become free from suffering. But it's, it's not something that you, ha you should ever be struggling with, like struggling to understand, because it's not like that. Non-self is rising, falling. The rising comes and goes. The falling comes and goes. There's no self involved there at all. It's changing from looking at my stomach to an experience, rising as an experience, falling as an experience, experience comes and goes, thinking is an experience, and gradually that comes about. So all of the eight path factors are involved here, even though we focused mainly on mindfulness. The Buddha did as well at times, well, quite often. It's the one, mindfulness is the one quality the Buddha said is always useful. It's the key to being apamada. Sati, sat, never, never being without sati, that's what we call apamada, which is the practice of, you know, the practice that the Buddha recommended, that the Buddha taught. Apamada means um, vigilance. Mindfulness is the thing that keeps you vigilant. It's the, the one quality that you can apply at all times. It's the quality that allows us to stay present and to build clarity and to follow the path. So the fourth path, um, or the fourth truth, is to be cultivated, bhavetabha. And we're cultivating it here. This is what you're cultivating as you practice mindfulness. So. Each of the Four Noble Truths, you see, has its, has its task. And the Buddha said, once he'd realized, once he'd gotten to the third part of each one, you know, where, where he had understood suffering completely, he had abandoned the cause of suffering, he had attained freedom from suffering, and he had done so by following the path to freedom from suffering. Then he said, I, he said he was a fully enlightened, but then he claimed it. He claimed that that is enlightenment. And many different religious leaders have different ideas of what enlightenment means. This was the Buddha's teaching on enlightenment. And that's basically the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. A good chance for us to reflect on the Four Noble Truths and to use it to focus on, or use it as a means of focusing our practice and aligning our practice with it. When he had finished, he turned to Anya Kondanya. Kondanya, remember, was the leader of this group of five. And he realized that Kondanya had understood the truth. While he was sitting there, listening to the Dhamma, he had attained Sotapanna, which means he had seen, he had let, let go of, he had seen freedom from suffering just for the first time. And he said, oh, you've seen, he called him Anya Kundanya, Anya Sivatabho Kundanya. Oh, you've seen. Oh, Kundanya, you see. And so they called him Anya Kundanya. And then the third part of the sutta, there's the whole sort of well, mystical experience. I think the earth shook and the sky opened up and there was a call, a cry from all through the heavens. All the gods and the angels, all the divine and celestial beings, they all set forth a cry that could be heard in the whole of the world system that the Dhamma Chakapavatana, the 
the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra, has been turned by the Buddha not to be apatiwatiyang, not to be turned back. So this is an important part of the Sutta. This this uh, claim that the wheel was put in motion and it cannot be stopped. So it's a very very vivid sort of um, imagery of the Buddha doing something on the, just by teaching. He changed the world and he set the ball rolling, we would say. Set the wheel rolling, set the wheel in motion. And they say it cannot be turned back. Apatiwatiyan Samanenava Brahmanenava Devenava Brahmunava Kenachiva Lokasmin No one in the world, not a another recluse or a Brahmin or an angel or a god could stop it now. So this is kind of how we look at Buddhism as being some inevitably very powerful rolling building, growing, continuing anyway, continuing teaching that the Buddha gave. And we pass it on and we pass on the torch and keep the, keep the ball rolling, keep the wheel turning through our practice, through spreading the practice and teaching the practice. continuing on this very ancient tradition and so on this day we remember it and we rejoice and we gain encouragement that we're following something very noble very pure very powerful so there you go a little introduction to asalha happy asalha starting tomorrow That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you. Have a good night.